Good morning. It is great to be together with you as you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. I want to just first commend all of our Bible school workers. If you took part in Bible school in any way, shape, or form, stand up for a minute, and if you're not standing, give them a hand. This great, great work. Outstanding. This campus was alive this week with Bible school, and I'm so thankful. And I was really impressed with so many things, but particularly our youth. Youth, y'all were awesome. I just got to tell y'all, it was, it was great. Thank y'all so much. And Steve, good job. It was so joyful and instructive, and I loved the way that it was laid out and the way that the gospel was communicated through the lessons. I think it was instructive and helpful, and it was just a great time together. So we rejoice. Um, Steve, when are the youth headed out to youth camp? Friday night at 10 p.m., kids will be headed out to youth camp. This will give you a reminder and an opportunity. Some of you have already involved yourself in sponsoring one of the youth or more of the youth than one. And there are still need for sponsorships from you that allow our youth, rather than going out and uh, selling pizzas or doing some kind of activity, uh, that, that engages them kind of in just trying to make money. Our students engage in ministry. How many hours do they engage in, Steve? 60 hours of ministry here at Kingsville Baptist Church allows them to qualify for being sponsored in youth camp. And that means they're up here, they're working, they're part of our ministry, they're learning ministry as they go and doing ministry and preparing for their trip. And so I want to encourage you to join my family and many other families in sponsoring a youth. And so here's what I'm going to ask of you real quick. If you'll take your bulletin and go ahead and tear off that tear out and write your name and tell us you want to sponsor one of the youth and just drop that off with me or Steve at the end of the service or leave it on one of the back tables back there and you can uh, sponsor them fully or in part. What's a full sponsorship, Steve? $350 is a full sponsorship, but you may say, whoa, I don't think I can pull that off. That's fine. If you can do anything toward it, it would be helpful. And so this is a great joy for you and a great blessing for them. Join me in Matthew chapter 5. How many of you uh, have ever been to Sam's and went to the little booths where they have the samples? Have y'all ever done that? Put your hand up if you've really done that. Okay, so that's not an unpopular thing. Uh, sometimes you'll catch that at Walmart or some of the other markets. Um, how many of you have ever just made a round and hit all of them? Okay, I've done that. I go into Sam's and I think, okay, there looks like there's about five of them. I'm going to make a lap, and I'm going to hit every one of them. And if one of them's really good, what am I going to do? I'm going to pass back by. And if it's super good, what is their goal? If it's super good, what are they really wanting from me? They're wanting me to think that their product is worth my investment. They're wanting me to buy their product. Well, there's something about Christians that's just like that. In the Old Testament, there is this statement that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And one of the ways that Jesus has chosen for the world to taste and see that the Lord is good is by people 
taking samples of Jesus from Christians. You see, in a sense, everywhere you go and everything you do as a Christian, you're like one of those workers at Sam's. You're putting into the hands of the people that you pass a sample of the work of Jesus and what he is like. They experience Jesus and the flavor of Christ through their relationship and interaction with you. And so when Jesus said that you were salt, he was making a statement of an influential flavor that was going to be a part of the character of a Christian, so much so that if you look back in verse 13 again, join me there, in 513 it says, you are the salt of the earth. But then he goes on, and I shared this with you when we kicked off the shine emphasis, he goes on and says, but if the salt has become tasteless. Now, there was a reason that that could happen. Back in the day, they, they, they harvested some of their salts, some of their table salts, from the Dead Sea. And there was a process by which they would harvest those salts. And those who were well-trained knew how to make it a pure harvest. But those who were greedy or slothful or sloppy, they would err in harvesting the salt. Or if they were deceptive, they would harvest the bad salts. And when they would sell it to you, they would sell it in a container where the bad salts lay under the good salts so that when you came by and the way you checked your salt was simply by taste. You would come by and the vendor would be there on the street and they'd have the little bag of salt there and you would just do just what you do at Sam's. You'd just take a little taste. And if it tasted very clearly salty with no bitterness, then it was high-quality salt and you would purchase it. But the deceptive vendors would put bad salts down under it. How many of you had to get off of sodium chloride and start taking potassium chloride because you had problems with your sodium levels? Anybody here ever do that? Paul, you had to do that? Paul, do you remember how potassium chloride tastes? It's pretty nasty. If you have straight potassium chloride, it can, it, can, it can serve as salt, but the truth is if you eat it straight, it's bitter. Now, here's what would happen. The vendors, to be deceptive, would take and put the bad salt at the bottom, the good salt at the top. Then when you get home and you would dump it into your salt container there at, the, at your home, the salts would become blended, and then you'd go and serve it and you'd go, Oh, man, that is so bitter. This is not pure salt. This has some of the bromides and the other salts from the Dead Sea. This is not any good. And they would take it and they would have to throw it out and use it as nothing but weed killer. Here's what happened. The salt became bitter. Now, the passage of Scripture that we're talking about today is the danger that through your life experiences through what goes on in the course of your growing up, your teenage years, your young adult years, your early married years, your young single years, that the things that you experience as life goes on and you hit your middle years, that the things that go on in your life, that there would be experiences that would 
embitter you. And that as those experiences took their toll on you, that your heart would be embittered and that you would become a vengeful person. And so when we get to verse 38, Jesus is talking about a society that has dressed up its bitterness and its vengefulness in the Scriptures. And when it came time to get even, and that's how I entitled the sermon, I don't get mad, I get, and everybody knows what it is, what did we say? I get even. When it came time to get even, their bitterness would be vengeance. And they would quote Scripture to justify their actions. So walk with me into verse 38 of Matthew 5. For if you heard, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When this passage of Scripture was first written, it was a legal passage. Each time that it's used in the Old Testament, it's used for a court to give a proper response to a loss incurred in someone's life. Whether intentional or unintentional, the court was called to set limits on how someone would be punished or make restitution for a wrong inflicted on another human being or another human being's property or possessions. And so these were put in place as judicial instruction about the limits for liability when a person did wrong to another human being or to that human being's property or that human being's possessions. And so the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth, was a limiting in a legal structure of how you would make restitution for a wrong that you had committed. Now, here's what folks were doing. They were taking vengeance into their own hand, quoting this verse, and letting the bitterness of their heart go out into vengeance on other people. And when folks would call them out and say, is that right? They would say, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I'm only doing what God commanded. And they would utterly and completely misuse God's word. And Jesus said, when people come up and sample your life, as a Christian, they should be tasting something really sweet and different. Not bitter, not vengeful, but radically different from everything that they had ever experienced. In fact, what Jesus was saying is that when people taste your life, they are sampling God. When the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good, the primary medium for that experience was the interaction of people with Christians. And so our lives are to be lives where we're kind of like those vendors in Sam's Club Our life is a booth, 
And everybody that we interact with gets a taste of what God has to offer them. And so our job is to see that Jesus gives us four particular ways that people are going to taste and see that God is good in their interaction with us and especially when we have been wronged. And so we step into this not wanting to be the bitter salts, but wanting to be the sweet aroma and flavor of the grace of God in Christ. And so number one, we shine the difference within us, Christ in us, by how we, number one, respond to personal humiliation. Herein is one of the great challenges for the Christian. If you're going to live for Jesus somewhere along the way, you're going to get humiliated. Satan is going to make sure he is going to encroach upon you in such a way as to embarrass you. Now let me share with you how serious embarrassment is. Embarrassment is so serious that on many occasions, people who've been caught in certain behaviors or crimes have rather died than been caught some who've been caught and convicted have taken their lives because the shame and humiliation and embarrassment was so much. There's a certain passage of Scripture in the Bible. If you'll join me in the book of Mark for just a moment. And this passage came to light to me in the last few weeks as I was spending some time reading through the Gospel of Mark and uh, spending some time with... Uh, just going chapter by chapter through. And something happened. I, I read in chapter uh, 14 something really provocative for me. And it made me consider what we're looking at today in a whole new light. So go to Mark 14, 66. And let me just read a brief passage to you. And, and ask you what's going on maybe. And then share with you what I believe is happening here. In Mark 14, 66, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, so Jesus has been arrested. They've come out into the garden. They've arrested Jesus. They've taken him in. And Peter's kind of followed along clandestinely. And he's arrived there at the courtyard, and he's trying to hide himself. And he says, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You too were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, Neither do I know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And the maid saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were saying to Peter, Surely you're one of them, because you're a Galilean too. And he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a cock crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a cock crows uh, twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Now, something's going on here. And, and through time, I guess I've interpreted this a particular way. But it was like things came to light on it this past week as I was reading through. And here's what I believe is happening. I don't think that in this moment Peter is afraid to die. I think he's already convinced us otherwise. Because if you go backwards to chapter 14 verse 43, when they came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? Anybody remember? He pulled his sword out and said, it is own. And he tried to cut the head off of 
one of the servants of the priest, and as he came by him, the guy ducked, and what did he take off of him? Took his ear off. Peter wasn't afraid to die. He had just said that. He had just said, Lord, we'll die with you. Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. What had happened was not that Peter was afraid to die. When it was on, he pulled his arms out and he said, let's go, life or death. And there he was, but what happened was Jesus got humiliated. Rather than flexing his divine messianic muscle and overcoming the high priests and the Romans and subduing them with messianic power, he was humiliated and treated as a common prisoner and brought before a false court and mistreated. And Peter is standing out to the side and there is something that seems to be worse than death and that is embarrassment and humiliation. Peter did not want the embarrassment of being tied to a loser. Before this, there was all the hopes that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, establish his authority, establish his power. It was hidden from Peter and the others what the crucifixion was really about. In fact, it wasn't until the resurrection that they understood those things. And so what happens is, is Peter is now embarrassed by Jesus. Because Jesus is not the hip, cool, leader, authority, calling the Pharisees out, part of this great movement, miracle worker, feed 5,000, raise dead. He is now a prisoner of the Romans and the Jews, humbled and humiliated, and Peter is embarrassed. And so one of the ways that we shine differently is by how we respond to humiliation. Read with me in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. The slapping on the cheek, on the right cheek, that means you were being given a backhand by a right-handed person. And a backhand was an offense. It was a provocation. It was an embarrassment. It was a demeaning. It was the way that someone would publicly humiliate you. And one of the ways that people taste what God is like is by how they respond to humiliation. Peter went defensive and became a liar and a cursor when he was humiliated. God intends that those of us who've been born of the Spirit, inhabited by God Himself, regenerated, empowered by His Spirit, to have an ability that when we get humiliated, that we bear under it and turn our other cheek and say, you cannot by your actions, provoke me into bitterness, wrath, or vengeance. I will not be manipulated by your desire to humiliate me. I will love you, and if you want to humiliate me, I'll give you a second opportunity because it is not going to provoke me to be like you. You see, what God is doing 
in the church is he's making a group of people not like the world. He's making them like Jesus. He's making them so radically different that when people experience life with us, even when they wrong us, they taste the sweet aroma, flavor, wonder of a God who makes people radically different. So Jesus says, we shine the difference within us by how we respond to personal humiliation. Second, he says, not only in humiliation are we going to deal with things and shine. Look at what happens in verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. This is when we respond rightly to our personal failure. When our personal failure is exposed, you see what's happened here is you have lost the suit. You've been sued, and they're taking your main garment that main garment was a matter of great expense. It was something that was of value. It was usually woven in one piece, intricately and in detail, and it was usually the prized possession of even the poorest person. And this garment that you could be sued for means that you lost your case. This is a suit that has gone to court and they have won. They have won and beat you. They have won your fundamental one thing, your shirt. It's actually a one-piece total body covering. That means you lost your case in court. That means that you wronged someone. You either didn't pay a creditor that you had borrowed from, or you had abused or misused or brought harm to a neighbor, or you had done business in a way that was unfair and either the businessman, the neighbor, or the creditor brought a suit against you and you lost because you were guilty, because you were wrong. And when the judge's gavel came down and you were found wrong, your guilt was exposed. And the fact that you had not paid your creditor, the fact that you had harmed or wronged your neighbor, the fact that you had not dealt justly with a business, means that suddenly the fact of your sin was exposed. And you had to turn over that one really important piece of clothing, and it was an embarrassment to give it up. And the easiest way you could cover that is just wear your coat all the time. And he said, when you've wronged somebody, you need to go further than the court requires in making reparation and restitution to the harm that you have caused. You need to go further than the court requires. You need to be so gentle in the reality of your wrong, and so vulnerable in the exposing of your guilt that you not only give the person that you wronged what the court demanded, you give them in excess of it as a testimony to the fact that you are different than anyone else on earth. And they would taste and see through your actions in the exposure of your loss and the exposure of your failure, 
they would taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus goes further and says, but there's another way that people taste and see the goodness of the Lord in you. Take a look in verse 41. And whomever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. This was the way that the Romans were able to hold the Jews in subjugation. Historians tell us that the Romans were able to force a Jewish person under their subjugation to carry a load, a certain length of travel. And so the Romans would come in and be carrying, remember this is exactly how Jesus had his cross carried. One of the Romans pushed into service another man and forced him to carry Jesus' load after Jesus had collapsed under the loss of blood and the lack of strength. A man was forced into service because the Romans could do that. They could look at any Jew, any time, any place and say, hey you, hey you, hey you, y'all come here. You're going to carry this this far. And under Roman law and subjugation under Rome, they had to do it. They had no choice. And so what would happen is, is that the Jews would carry that load and the whole time they would be grumbling and cursing under their breath saying, let me tell you something, as soon as I get the chance to overthrow these stinking Romans, I will do it. And the Jews began a movement called the Sicarii. And what the Sicarii do, would they would move in groups. And and the group would move along on the road and in the town. And that group would walk around a Roman soldier. And one of the group would slide a long sword up into the heart of the soldier. Pull it out. Slide it back in his robe. And they would move on. And the crowd would leave nothing there but a dead Roman soldier. The Sicarii were famous for working toward an overthrow. In fact, they were the leaders that brought the war in AD 70 with Rome that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. And so seething under their breath while they were carrying the load for the Romans, the Jews would be planning their vengeance and the murder of these men. And Jesus said, you're different. If the law of the Romans says you tote this thing a mile, because you are so fundamentally different than anyone else on earth, and you are divinely empowered with something beyond yourself, carry it two miles. And they will ask you, what's up with this? Every other Jew that's ever carried my stuff cursed me under his breath and looked at me with such spite. Oh, we're Jesus' people. How can I help you? And Rome would be rattled by this very attitude because when you see Christianity overtaking Rome, you hear the Roman writers talking about that as the plagues would come in, Rome would abandon their own citizens and the Christians would take care of them and love them. And so here... How we respond when our personal autonomy is threatened. When somebody comes in and begins to dominate, subjugate, take control, and misuse us, we have an opportunity to shine in that moment under the laws that we're under and say, we're different. 
Rome, look at us. We have a power and a transformation in us that's radically different. And so the Roman soldiers would taste and see that the Lord is good. Fourth, Jesus makes one more case for us after he's made clear to us that we shine in response to personal humiliation. We shine in response to when our personal failure is exposed. We shine in response to when our personal autonomy is threatened. Here, we shine in response to how our personal property is used and when our personal property is needed. Look in verse 42. Jesus is in the same context, so let's figure this in this context. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Have you ever... You don't need to raise your hand on this one, but I'm going to raise mine. Have you ever had somebody do something to you, and in your mind you said this? You just wait until you need something from me, buddy. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I have. You just wait until you need me. Yeah, it's on then. Forget the vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You wait until you need me. You wait till I find you laying in a ditch somewhere. You just wait. What Jesus is saying is that you can't store up vengeance and bitterness to use on somebody at a later date when they need you. That you're going to be so different that even when somebody has wronged you personally and misused you, that when God turns the tables and they need you, you're going to serve them. You're going to give to them. You're going to lend to them. You're going to help them because you're different. You're going to do for them the same way Jesus did for you. The same way God in Christ did for you. You're going to be different when you're humiliated. You're going to be different when you're exposed. You're going to be different when you're oppressed. And you're going to be different when the tables turn and they need you. You're going to be different. And that person that God is going to orchestrate in their life a need from you after they have hurt you so that they can taste of His goodness through you. They're going to come to you and you're not going to exact judgment on them. You're going to love them the way Jesus loved you. You're going to do good to them even though they did evil to you. What Jesus is doing is He's setting up a community of samplers. He's sending this community called Christians out into the world with our little sample tray and our little food cart. And He's posting us in the highways and the byways of life. And He is setting up opportunities for people to have an interaction with you even after they have oppressed, 
humiliated and exposed you, he is setting up for you to do kindness to them and make them savor the flavor. And they're going to say, I've tasted the Lord and he's good. And if this is what he does to and through his people, this is a God I want to know. And so, God is putting you and your sample card on display everywhere you are, from your house and how you treat your family, to your neighborhood and how you treat your neighbors, to the marketplace where you interact with the community, to your workplace where you interact with your coworkers, to your school. He is setting you up with your card, and He's putting a sign on you that says... Taste and see that the Lord is good. And people are going to stop by your cart every day. And Jesus is going to teach you. He's going to empower you how not to be bitter. He's going to put a sweetness in you that's supernatural. It's unexplainable. So how do we do this? Well, I want to take you through three quick things. Number one, don't let people rent space in your head. This is one of my favorite sayings. A friend of mine by the name of Monica Lynch told me this one day, and it has ministered to me time and time again. Here's what happens. Somebody offends you, and you lease them in an apartment in your head, and they live with you. And you... Store in that apartment everything they've ever done wrong to you. And you go and visit that room and you go and visit that person every chance you get. And you feed your bitterness, you feed your wrath, you feed your vengeance by rehearsing those things, those hurts, those deeds, those activities. And they've got a little apartment and they are living in your head. And it is time to evict them and their stuff. How do we do that? That's where we get number two. Choose to forgive and leave vengeance to God. Forgiveness is an act that we do regardless of how we feel. It is a loving act that we do to another person regardless of if they deserve it. And the eviction is when we take them out of that wrong place in our head and we put them out of our head and leave them in God's hand and we begin praying for them and ministering to them and doing good to them rather than having them rule a section and sector of our mind. And so... We choose to forgive and leave vengeance to God. There's so many scriptures backing that up that you know it's true. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God also in Christ has forgiven you. If you do not forgive your brother who sinned against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Romans 12 tells us, leave room for the vengeance of God. When we take vengeance, we steal something that belongs to God and we become thieves, robbing God of what is His alone. Finally, and I think this is the hardest one, 
because this one's going to mean a different kind of interaction. And I have seen God do this time and time again. Ask God to provide an opportunity to wash their feet. We're not talking about moving into a neutral posture toward people who've hurt us. We're not trying to become inert. We're not trying to get to a place where we say, okay, I forgive them as long as they will forever and ever not ever be around me again. We begin praying, oh God, my Father, you demonstrated when Jesus came to this earth the kind of loving service you have. And what did he do? He washed the disciples' stinky feet, dirty feet. He, I tell you what, God, I want to be able to wash this person's feet. Please create a situation where I can lovingly minister to this person who's hurt me and repair what is broken through doing some act of service or kindness or goodness, Christ-likeness. I want the people who've hurt me to taste the sweetness of the God I know. I want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. One of my favorite stories of recent was the story of a mom whose son was murdered. And the mom felt moved by God to go and forgive the young man. And she did. She went and forgave the young man while he was yet in prison. She found out when he was being released that he had no place to stay. She found a place right beside her in a duplex and let him come and stay in the same dwelling that she was staying in. She forgave him, ministered to him, and she washed his feet, though he had murdered her son. People all over the world have read that story, heard that story, watched it on YouTube, and been utterly stunned that there could be anybody so kind and so loving as to do this. Well, my brothers and sisters, we're it. This is the place where coming here, the world should taste and see that the Lord is good. And anywhere they meet, any one of us who claim to know Christ, we got our little booth set up and we got our little samples and we want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you bow with me? This morning, there's a key to this. It's not in my strength to oomph my way into it. In fact, in my natural abilities, when I'm humiliated, the very first thing I do is try to hide and shift the blame. I, like Peter, would lie. And when I'm exposed, I want to cover my weaknesses and cover my failures. I can't accept that I'm actually needy of grace and needy of forgiveness and needy of God. And so I want to hide that. And when somebody... Wants to get something from me after they've already hurt me. My initial heart response is no way. But the Bible says that when a person comes to Jesus, something miraculous happens. That their hearts are changed. That the heart of stone that's cold and bitter and hard and vengeful is taken out, and a new heart of flesh, feeling, 
loving, caring, is put in. And that heart, that heart, has God's word, his law, his desire written on it. And it makes us different. And then God's spirit fills us with a power that's not our own. So that when we are oppressed, humiliated, when we experience being exposed as sinners and failures, we can learn to be recipients of grace and not grow bitter, but let the flavor of Christ come out of our lives so that the people who meet us taste and see that the Lord is good. But in order to do this, my friends, you must be born again. You must repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, believing that He is God in the flesh, that He is the Savior of the world, dying for your sins and living sinlessly, and that He is the King to be obeyed, and that you personally this day would repent and trust Him. Some of you are here today, that's what you need. You need to be saved. I want to invite you right now to receive Christ. To call upon Him, even with me, in prayer and ask Him to save you at this moment. Would you do that? Pray with me. Father, I am the sinner Pastor Bart described. But more than that, the sinner your Word describes. And so I'm praying now, confessing my sin to you. I admit it. But I believe this good news he shared that Jesus lived and died for me. He is your son, you in human flesh. He is my savior. He is my king. And so I turn from myself and I trust him. Save me, God, please. The Bible says if you ask him, that he will. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I also know that there are some here who are believers and you have let bitterness and vengeance build up in you. And you've been making some decisions of late, maybe even today, based on that bitterness. And you're not forgiving somebody. And it's time to evict them out of your head. It is time to forgive them and leave vengeance to God. It is time to plead with God. God, Give me a way to wash their feet. Believer, would you join me at the altar today and ask that of God? Would you stand as God stirs your heart? Would you come?